everybody, it's Neil I from The Vergecast. If you listen to this week's show, you know we had a special guest, Casey Neistat, stopped by our office and sat down for basically an hour-long, super candid interview. It was really fun. We ran an edited version of that in the show this week, but we wanted to give everybody the full interview. So here it is. If you've already listened to The Vergecast, know that we edited what you heard there. So if you want just the new stuff, skip about 10 minutes in past the Beam conversation, and that's where the new stuff starts. We'll put the exact timestamp in the description for you. But enjoy this, the full interview with Casey Neistat. Casey Neistat is here. Casey is here. Casey, I've been trying to get you on this show since for a year, since we met at South by Southwest a year ago. You know, that makes it sound like um, this is some sort of like elusive, <laughs> I live two blocks from here, my office is three blocks from here. It's just been... Like, you should publish our uh, DM thread alongside this podcast that's just like, this Tuesday, and it's like, nah, it doesn't work. How's Wednesday? Not good for me. Yeah. For 365 days. So can I tell the story of when we hung out at South by Southwest? Yeah, One please. of the most insane dinners of my entire life. Yeah, and, and, and get us I, I think time. I may have been hosting that dinner, you and I had no dinner. idea what I was getting myself into. It was very strange. So CNN had just acquired Beam. That's right. Uh, and Casey did me. He invited me to dinner. CNN's hosting dinner. There's like an insane guest list. You were there. Uh, Cory Booker was there. It was like it was a big dinner. Jeff yeah. Sucker was there. Who else was there? Alexis was there. Alexis Sahanian was there. It was a great dinner. There were some. And then there were some some outliers there. I, w- I was there. <laughs> <laughs> there were the CMO uh, Mark of of Samsung was there. Yeah. And I remember like I was dressed as I'm dressed now, like sweater and jeans yeah. or something. There were some people there in suits. And I was also were, dressed like a piece of crap. And then there were a couple of people like in the corner that were like, what did you invite me to? Yeah. I'm wearing sweatpants. So it's this big fancy dinner, and it's supposed to be on the roof of a hotel in Austin. Private chefs. And it was raining. Torrential. Was torrential rain, so it got moved inside. And Jeff Sucker was very angry that it had been moved inside. We all were. And then the fire alarms went off. And the door between us and the private chefs that were cooking for us began to slowly close by itself. And if I could paint the picture a little bit more, it's like a big, big room, like a, like a substantial room. And the chef's kitchen was open to the dining area, like a sort of like a, like a fancy restaurant situation. So you could watch the chefs yeah. cook your meal. And that, and, and the door just, just sep- separating the two, yeah. And the the light on the fire alarm was like flashing. You jumped up and put your hat over the light because it was so distracting. It was bright. Uh, and then we we're like, we should hang out more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's more details to that story too. Like the whole point is the chefs were supposed to serve us, but they couldn't yeah. get to us because there was a firewall between us. Yeah. They had to go out through the fire uh, escape into the stairwell, around, going yeah. all the way around. So we weren't able to get our food. I didn't really notice or care, but I think the folks from CNN who organized it and were like super upset about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Senator Booker yeah. seemed pretty chill about the whole situation. He was, he was very chill. Every, there was, food, the, food was great. You know, if you're a guest and you, I imagine a lot of people there are like professional guests that go to a lot of events, like your job is to be chill and like not make a scene. If you're the host in that situation, you are losing your shit. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm like a, you know, I'm, I'm, I eat at McDonald's four days a week. Like it's a fancy <laughs> dinner. Like I, I alarms, this just felt normal to me, but they were really stressed out about it. Anyway, so that was one of the first times we like seriously hung out a year ago. Yeah, We've yeah. been DMing ever since and I've been... I mean, why don't you come on the show? For a couple of reasons. One, I'm just interested in what you're doing. Two, and I want to talk about that. Two, uh, whatever is happening right now with platforms, it just seems out of control. And I think you're obviously one of the, the smartest thinkers about YouTube as a platform, but you think about all the other platforms too. So I want to talk to you about that stuff. Because I think whatever's happening with Facebook right now, 
is coming for YouTube next. And I really want to kind of get your thoughts on that. But let's, I want to start with you. Please. So that was a year ago. We were celebrating Beam. Tell me a little bit about Beam. Like, what, what's that story? I mean, the whole story uh, abbreviated and jump in for, for, for details. But, you know, I started that company. It was an idea. And it, it was the original idea was still an awesome idea. But basically it was everybody's going to be wearing Google Glass or something like it in the future. And imagine if you could just tap your, your temple and mm -hmm. capture what you're seeing and share it to the world. Yeah. And the idea was conceived before uh, Snapchat launched Stories. But I got really excited about that idea, and I raised money and then partnered with Matt Hackett and then launched as a tech company, and Google Glass then died, and then uh, Snapchat really came up, and it, it sort of kept shifting and changing and growing and, you know, had a really successful launch, but like most apps do, sort of leveled off, and then Snapchat got really awesome, way better than us, and mm. I think we struggled in that space. Yeah. But... It, you know, in parallel with that life cycle of the software development company that was Beam was my YouTube channel and the launch of my daily show on my YouTube channel, which was very much so about Beam, the tech company. And I think it was a confluence of, you know, the, the, the technical prowess demonstrated by the team more so than what the product accomplished itself, combined with what I did in the new media space via the vlog that ended up being an attractive prospect to a, a couple of companies. Mm -hmm. um, in Turner, CNN was most attracted and put forth, I think, the most interesting offer for Matt and myself. Yeah. And that is what led to the acquisition in November of 2016. What did you want it to be at CNN? Because I heard a couple different versions from you and some other folks there that it went in a couple of different ways. What did you ultimately want it to be? Well, I think what I wanted it to be and what they wanted it to be um, – didn't exactly look the same, and it unfortunately took a long time to really understand that. But what I wanted it to be was I was excited about technology, and that's why I started Beam. Um, media and YouTube, those are things that I've always understood and I love doing, but technology was a, a, a new frontier for me. So with CNN and them expressing what their desires were in, in the tech space, you know, they have an app and they have some interesting tech, but they don't have anything that I would describe as... Um, outside of the realm of what you'd expect from a, a, a news media company like Turner or CNN. Yeah. Uh, so I saw an opportunity there for us to make some really forward-thinking software products. But was it going to be, when you launched Beam, it was just your own company, it was like hold it to your chest. But it was purely, yeah, it was purely a software And then when you company. went to CNN, it was like, we're going to take in all this input and make a daily show. And then you made a bunch of like kind of standalone YouTube videos about some interesting topics. Was that the final decision? Yeah, I mean, well, that's where I was going with my... Diatribe there. Sorry if I was drifting, but it, <laughs> but the idea, like what what excited me, mm -hmm. um, was to develop forward thinking apps, leveraging all the amazing resources that CNN had, and then to have a media component of it as well, a media component that leveraged the information uh, that the technology enabled, and then disseminate that via new media channels, so YouTube yeah. and social media and things like that. So that's a very like high level sort of wishy washy elevator pitch for a mm -hmm. company. But to me, it felt like enough. Yeah. And then from there, and I think this is where your confusion is coming from, and I think the world's confusion with what the hell we were doing came from. From there, like that was enough of a foundation for me as a tech entrepreneur and as somebody who's really sort of freewheeled my way through new media to build a company on. Like yeah. here's a tiny foundation of an idea, go. And what works, do more of. And what doesn't work, move on from immediately. And I think where I struggled is that kind of entrepreneurial thinking 
that kind of like innovators thinking just doesn't really mesh necessarily well with a larger entity like a Turner. Yeah. And that was where kind of a, a lot of the struggles came from. As things were winding down early this year, Matt and I looked back and we were like, this is literally a case study for the innovator's dilemma. Like, really? This is what we were confronting here. You th- so the classically, classically, our audience knows the innovator's dilemma. I'm going to sure. say it out loud. That's when a company has an existing product line. The, I think the classic example is like IBM and mainframes. And then a cheaper product comes along that disrupt, disrupts it. And they can't invest in the cheaper product and compete in that market because they have to protect their larger market. So you're saying CNN was – they have to protect cable so they couldn't come at you because you would destroy their existing business? I, I think it's a very, that's a very literal interpretation okay. of it. But I think it had to do with the kind of nimble thinking that enables uh, startups to operate and disrupt mm-hmm. um, isn't necessarily the kind of nimble thinking that a company as large as uh, – as an old school media company can can do, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Yeah, um, I, I know I'm being a little bit evasive here, and I'm I'm trying to speak carefully because CNN was a fantastic partner, mm-hmm. and that's why I was very vocal in owning the failures and the shortcomings of Beam as not a product of CNN, but a product of my you know my own shortcomings. Right, you made um, a very heartfelt video when you when you wound it down. Yeah, and that's because I believe that. Like, I, you know, CNN was an incredible partner, and they wanted us to do what we thought we needed to do to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I, you know, like, the first thing we did was hire a bunch of people. In retrospect, huge mistake. Like, top heaviness is not something that is conducive to a startup environment. Bootstrapping, mm-hmm. where you have to hustle and you force yourself to go beyond your comfort zone and you force yourself to assume responsibilities that go beyond your specific set of responsibilities. Um, that is where real like innovative spirit comes from. So you think you got too big too fast inside of CNN? Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, that getting too big too fast goes back to, again, that sort of innovators dilemma um, uh, analogy, which is that the way a big company like that works is let's make sure we have the staff and the resources to scale the way we want to scale. Right. And that is a right, But very, you need to have something to scale. Sure. Uh, right. right. And, and that's I like think, the main problem. Right. And I think that's exactly the, the, the stress point that I'm trying to articulate. There was no malice there. There was yeah. nothing uh, that I would fault CNN for. They did what they believed was really right. And I think that they were wonderful in that capacity. And we were trying to do what we knew how to do, which was the best, you know, best we were going to do. And ultimately, like, those two, the convergence of those two ideologies were in conflict, uh, not in concert. And that was a really challenging environment for Matt and I to, to operate in. Can you, what was the day that you decided to wind it down? Can you, can you say, like, who'd you talk to? You're like, I'm done. You sent an email. You sent a text. Um, you tweeted. It, it was not my decision. Okay. It was not my decision. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think towards the end, the last couple of months, Matt and I were really exploring and presenting with CNN myriad ways forward that we saw would yield success. Mm-hmm. And CNN was incredible in that capacity as well. Like yeah. they had a number of ideas and the process was a process of, of mutual exploration, meaning that like, you know, the heads of CNN that we worked with, incredible, uh, really, really smart thinkers. They presented us with opportunities. We would compliment them back with other opportunities. And there was a lot of goings-ons there that um, we were excited about and some we weren't excited about. But ultimately, um, you know, ultimately a company of that size and a company with that kind of balance sheets 
looks at things in ways that is 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 not the way an entrepreneur would look at things. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was building Beam with Matt, it was like survival and success at all costs. Pivot, shift, whatever the fuck it takes to make yeah. this company a success. Um, but when you've got an entity as large as that, that's not necessarily the way they think. And I think at the, at the end of the day, ultimately, they saw uh, being more financially responsible to absorb, you know, the assets that we had accrued over the course of a year of operating independently, absorb them into the company itself, um, absolve itself of the uh, expenses that were keeping us external, mm-hmm. and let Matt and I go. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Matt and I really were empathetic to that position, and it was a, you know, it was a, a, a sort of a collective we arrived at that place collectively. Yeah. So here's my question. So that's Please. me. But a lot of that shift for CNN, for every company, is obviously Trump. CNN's doing great covering Trump. And then there's this other parallel movement happening on social platforms. Facebook is just in the news right now because of whatever happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and um, data usage. And Can I campaign. interject with yeah. a Cambridge Analytica story? Yeah, of course. I've never told this before. I'm here for it. What is the name of that the CEO, the one that was caught yesterday on... Next. Okay. I spoke at this enormous conference in Germany or in Belgium, and this was uh, less than a year ago. This was year 2017. And huge, huge, huge media conference, uh, probably three, four, th- 5,000 people in the audience. He spoke before me. Really? Yes. And his presentation was what you'd expect. Mm. Um, data on screen, completely objectively presented, meaning there, it was apolitical, but everything was referencing Donald Trump. And they, he broke down in a way that as I was watching from backstage, I was like, dude, are you sure you want to be saying this publicly? <laughs> like it was so transparent and open about exactly like here's how you win an election. And none of it had to do with anything about sharing a message or getting this uh, candidate's uh, position points out there. It was purely about how to manipulate emotions yeah. and how to, how to tap into those via data. And it was, it was haunting. And as it wound down, he took a few questions from a panel that sat on the side of the stage. And it got combative super fast. Um, This is a very liberal uh, Western European audience. And they started tearing into him. And it got combative to the point where boos were being shouted and, you know, chants from the audience. And it was just gnarly. And it ended. And I watched him walk backstage. And I just remember seeing the guy. And, uh, you know, I don't don't certainly don't know him personally. But he he looked like a Bond villain. I just remember, like, that was the last thing I thought. And then I walked on stage. And my presentations are fun and they're goofy and I play my stupid YouTube videos and I bounce around. So it was one of the toughest acts to follow. Yeah. Um, Alexander Nix, by the way, he kind of does look like a Bond villain. That's my my entire Cambridge Analytica story, so you can continue now. Sorry for that that digression. Well, I want to talk about what you just said. Your videos on YouTube are fun and goofy, but these are all platforms. Facebook is... Obviously, a platform it's under a lot of scrutiny for how people use and misuse it. YouTube, I think it's coming for YouTube next, right? There's a lot of dark, weird shit on YouTube, and there's then there's your stuff, and then there's what YouTube wants thinks it is. So that's a lot. Let's let's unpack. Yeah. Let's unpack first. Um, Facebook. I think Facebook. If you look at the last really f- six, four, six years, and most more pointedly, the last two years. A lot of the manipulation that's taken place on there, um, and, I, and just speaking apolitically, whether yeah. it has to do with advertising or it has to do with selling a, a political candidate, it's all data-driven. Mm-hmm. And Cambridge Analytica would be the first to say that. It's data-driven. The um, Russian hacking, data-driven. And behind that data is certainly uh, things like, you know, 
news that's, that has no backing and memes that are borderline ridiculous, like Donald Trump arm wrestling Satan and Jesus yeah. and like all kinds of madness. But it's all data, data, data. And I think that to a great expense, there is a way for companies like the Twitters and the Facebooks of the world to sort of control that. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope. That's, a very, that's my very uh, naive optimism there is that they can shut that down by no longer giving these entities access to their platform. So let's just assume that's the case, and that's a sweeping generalization. Let's just assume they can fix that by by shutting down their access to the data. YouTube so, is— Wait, shut, not shutting down their access to publish, shutting down their access to the data. Any one of those levers. Okay. The point is there are levers attached to those. So access to the data, which drives the access to the, the sure. public, et cetera, et cetera. Let's just assume they can flip those switches. Um, the distinction that I'm trying to draw is that YouTube does not have that opportunity to flip those switches. And what I mean by that is if it's data-driving memes and data-driving fake news and data-driving propaganda on these other platforms, on YouTube, it's the opposite of, of that. On YouTube, it's an individual looking into the lens in a very sort of demagogic way. I don't believe that, man. Like there are some people, right, and there's a lot of those. But there's also like weird robot conspiracy theories. Sure, but, but the, the impact the um, impact of those, and again, like there's that we're, there's a shitload to talk about on this yeah. topic. <laughs> but what I'm speaking up purely is when it comes to political influence. Sure, because that's what's in the news right now, Cambridge Anal- yeah. uh, Analytica. And when it comes to what YouTube enables people, uh, extremists on on either mm-hmm. side of the fence, to do. By giving them this platform to speak into a camera, I think is going to be, and this is the point I'm slowly driving towards, but is is it gives them a platform to share their perspective that's about a human being. Sure. If you look at what InfoWars has been able to do, you look at their growth, it's because people subscribe to Alex Jones. Yeah. And I think that there are uh, a lot of individuals out there that are extreme on either side of the spectrum that can leverage that. And that's a much harder monster to control than the potential switches, uh, technical switches that a platform like a Facebook might be able to throw. Uh, maybe. I mean, like, I think Alex Jones is dangerous, right? Like, peddles a lot of nonsense. He's, he says school shootings are hoaxes. Like, that is a dangerous individual in my mind. You could... YouTube could just shut them down, right? And they're, okay, they're, like, but then they're kind of hinting at like, but then you're getting here's a towards, strike, here's another strike. Sure, but then you're getting towards thought police versus... But, but it's the same with Facebook. Facebook says we're taking your data away. You can't make these memes. It doesn't matter. The, the memes, whether or not they're designed to convince you, are still speech. Fair, but I do think that they're, it's, it's much easier to define nefarious, uh, nefarious rule-breaking uh, maneuvering on a Facebook. Cambridge Analytica... You know, they should not have had access to those 50. They, they uh, obtained that, that data of 50 million Americans under false pretenses. That is against the rules. They're not supposed to do that. Um, Russian hackers, like Facebook should be able to say that foreign governments cannot buy, mm-hmm. uh, that, or at least they can say foreign governments are not able to buy access to, um, to individuals for political purposes. So what is YouTube's move? Like it, po- political people aren't allowed to talk to camera. And this is the point I'm, I'm, I know I'm not doing a good job articulating myself here, but this is the point that I'm t- trying to draw is that the, the ability to share uh, inf- extreme information is going to be much, much, much harder to control on a platform like YouTube because it's about a human being, because it's about subscribing to an individual versus a, a, a Facebook, which is about manipulating uh, the way data is disseminated. So my, my disagreement here is I think just a disagreement in kind, right? Okay, like yeah, yeah. I, I make a lot of videos now. I didn't start that way. I started writing. What Facebook 
once upon a time gave me the opportunity to do was distrib distribute my writing, right? So you can shut down my access to your data. That just means I'm worse at distributing my writing. Or if I was a cartoonist, I'm like worse at distributing cartoons. I don't think there's a big difference when it comes to modulating speech between a video and a piece of text or a video and a photo or a meme. And so I think the difference in kind that I just find myself drawn to is I don't really care if it's someone talking to camera who's dangerous or someone writing something that goes viral on Facebook that's dangerous, whether or not you're subscribing to a person. You can still turn it off. I think the question of who do we turn off when do we turn it the, off? The question of thought, how do we, thought police. How do, how do we communicate why we're turning things off? None of these platforms are doing a, a good job of it. And to me, I think one of the biggest struggles that creators like you have that when I talk to people is YouTube seems to be like the only game in town that is doing an even reasonable job of communicating what the hell it's doing and why. And I don't think they're doing a great job. I, I don't know what they're doing and why. No, I just listened to uh, Kara Swisher did a fantastic interview with uh, Susan uh, Wojcicki, I think two weeks ago on her Recode podcast. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of information there. And I don't know a lot of information. So, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, here we are nearly 24 hours out from the revelation of the um, Cambridge Analytica breach, and we haven't heard from them. I don't really understand what YouTube's doing. I don't understand how they could ever shut someone like an Infowars down, but let someone who's more legitimate remain without... Yeah you know, without becoming the thought police. I don't understand how they could put out rules and regulations and community guidelines that uh, enable anyone from sharing their political beliefs but shutting down extremists. And how do you define extremists? I don't, uh, I don't know how they well, could have... could. I mean, the thing is you can't... You just have to do it. Uh, right? Sure, so you have the, to do the, it, the but, problem, do, but it let, let's hard. chase that down. Yeah. Like, do, do what? Who qualifies someone as an extremist? Sure. Where but, does free speech end and where does thought police begin? But so they are not the government, right? They don't have a free speech obligation to anyone. The, the, the First sure. Amendment applies to the I, government. I could speech. not agree with you more. But so what if you are running YouTube, okay. you could literally say, we will not allow anything that we think is racist on this platform, and we're going to decide, and that is the end of it. And they could just decide. Every single day they could just decide, ah, oh, that's a little too racist, and turn it off. I, I don't know if that's the right answer, but it, it there's nothing think, preventing them from doing it. Sure, but you're speaking – Theoretically, no. I'm and speaking very practically. I don't think you, you could are. Just decide. Forty hours of content, and I'm not sitting here defending YouTube. Yeah. I'm one of YouTube's biggest critics, despite <laughs> biting the hand that feeds me is like my middle name when it comes yeah. to YouTube. But and I don't mean to be defending the platform, but at forty hours of content being uploaded every minute of every day, every day of the week, every every week of the year, um, how could they possibly do that without painting themselves? into a wildly, uh, you know, dangerous corner of picking and choosing favorites and falling along political lines. I, and I mean, th th I think that's the thing that I – look, I run a media site, right? We decide what to publish. I think I, I probably have a lot of bias that, like, if you're going to be a, a media organization, you have some responsibility to publish the right things. They spend a lot of time claiming that they're not a media organization sure. or a news organization, right? I think Facebook does the same thing. Once you say that you are – then the responsibilities just – they come to you. You have them. Right, and it's funny because both <laughs> Facebook and YouTube both say they're not media companies. They're technology companies. All the time. Yet they, they – They're the biggest media companies That's exactly in the right. And not only that, but their entire um, business model is based on being media companies. Yeah. So, so uh, to me, I think it just comes down to you could. It, it might cost you a lot of money. It might be really hard to do. It might 
lead you to have a bunch of very annoying philosophical questions. But none of those are impossible, right? They just seem hard. And so instead, we're going to like try to build software that does it for us, or we're going to say we're going to throw our hands in the air and say we can't stop it. But I think this, to me, this comes down to a pretty practical question. Yeah. Facebook yesterday announced like their Patreon clone. By the way, we're recording this on Tuesday. The show comes out on Friday. Casey's in the office. Hey, we should have made that clear. We probably should have. Otherwise, we're going to sound like really late to the game. Yeah, like Facebook is going <laughs> to shut down tomorrow, and it's all over. <laughs> um, but uh, Facebook announced it's like Patreon clone, right? They want to attract creators to that platform. Does that interest you? Uh, That's what I feel like YouTube seems like a, you, know, you can't get away from it. This is a much more exciting pivot here. I'm a, a man of medium intelligence, and in my, in my best mind frame, I can't think of a reasonable solution. And hearing someone's, I think, idealistic, simplistic uh, sure. answer to that, which is just do it, which is great, but like literally do a math equation, 40 hours every minute of every day. There aren't enough human beings on planet Earth, 7 billion human beings, to actually watch every piece of content and trust the judgment of all 7 billion people. Like it's just – it's impractical. Mm -hmm. But I agree that there is a solution somewhere. I just don't know what the fuck that solution is and it leads to this like extraordinary position of frustration that I imagine the company has and I have no empathy for their frustration. I don't care. Solve yeah. it, YouTube. Solve it. Um, so in any event, that's always a dead-end conversation because there is no um, there is no satisfying uh, conclusion. Yeah. But this conversation is much more enticing. This is much sure. more exciting. So your question was, is, is Facebook's new monetization opportunity exciting for creators? The short answer is yes. I think that as a creator, uh, I wish there was a better word than influencer because that's just such a dirty, disgusting word. But generically an influencer, someone who peddles their influence in exchange for <laughs> goods and service. Yeah. Um, you know, as someone who makes a living on social media, there's always a desire to find new outlets um, mm -hmm. for monetizing the content that you create. And I think if Facebook is coming up with inventive ways to do that, sure, that's interesting. That's that's a very pragmatic, uh, practical answer. I think a more romantic or more emotional answer is just that what's cool right now? Mm -hmm. um, where are the eyeballs right now? What's socially and culturally relevant right now? Um, yesterday I tweeted uh, Ninja, who's a, a, a huge gamer, huge streamer on Twitch. I tweeted his interview with uh, CNBC. And um, I said, if YouTube's not scared of Twitch yet, they should be now. And you've been doing stuff on Twitch recently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I think Twitch is a really interesting platform. But there was a lot of people that came back to me who were, were not creators on either platform. And they're like, YouTube is you know bigger than Twitch by a multiple of X. YouTube has nothing to worry about. YouTube is not for streaming. YouTube is not for gaming. Twitch is only totally reasonable responses that, mm -hmm. I, that practically, they're unemotionally, they're all correct. Except when you put the X factor of emotion, you put the X factor of culture, you put the X factor of cool in there, and all of a sudden it becomes a very real existential threat. Not to YouTube as a viable search engine for video that is the you know global uh, standard for searching for video, but the community, the, mm -hmm. the community of creators and their audience, which is a huge, extremely exciting, extremely valuable piece of property in the media space. I would argue the most valuable piece of property in the media space. Yeah. They're vulnerable. YouTube is vulnerable. And if Twitch is seen as the new cool guy, cool kid in town, which like Ninja did an amazing job and, and so did CNBC of painting it as that when they're talking about the monetization opportunities on the platform and Twitch Prime and all these things that sound so much more exciting than 
a five-second pre-roll that you wait to <laughs> skip, and in return yeah. you get uh, 50% of the tenth of a penny or whatever it is on YouTube. That sounds exciting. And if there are interesting people like Ninja and the other, the other people that are really dominating Twitch as a platform, combined with the mass frustration that's taking place with the creator community on YouTube, that's what I see as an existential threat. I don't think YouTube's going to go out of business this year, and I don't think Twitch is going to become uh, Eclipse YouTube anytime soon. But I do think in the months and the years, tides shift. And when they shift, like Snapchat seemed like this impenetrable, invulnerable monster when it came to being socially relevant and cool. And Instagram is 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 mopping the floor with them when it comes to social relevance right now. So I've seen a lot of like Vine stars went to Instagram. When you think about where you're going to be, is your home YouTube and you're like looking for something else or are you trying to be distributed everywhere or how do you see that playing out? Um, I've, I've always uh, aspired to be platform agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've always said I'm only loyal to my audience. I have no loyalty to a platform. I love YouTube, but if my audience is not on YouTube, I'm going to go to wherever my audience is. Yeah. And this is why, no matter how interesting the monetization prospects are in, on Facebook, the majority of my audience right now is not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if they had really compelling ways to pay me, if my audience isn't there, I don't care. Um, inversely, if there are places that I'm not making any money at all, but my audience is there, I'll go there. Yeah. How do you uh, balance that out? I mean, you gotta make, you gotta eat. Yeah, and and I think it's very challenging. Yeah. Um, but I think that how I balance that out is the main reason why YouTube is such a priority for me. It's where um, the majority of my audience is. Um, so what you see me doing on Facebook, what you see me doing on Twitch, what you see me doing on um, Instagram and places like that, it's experimental. It's to see like how does the audience respond to stuff here versus what you would see me doing and you have seen me doing on a platform like YouTube, which is a much more committed, consistent um, respect for both the audience, the content, uh, and the platform. Yeah. So another thing I want to ask you about, you very famously have a deal with Samsung. I always think about that when we do our videos because that's a line that we as journalists and reviewers just can't cross. Like Samsung can't pay me to do anything. So they, they offer. We, we say no like all the time. Apple can't pay me to do anything. Everyone believes Apple pays us to do everything. <laughs> it's just the, the you reality. Guys are, you guys are such fanboys. <laughs> it's the reality of the situation. But, you know, that's like just a line we don't cross. You live on the other side of that fence. Do you ever feel pressure from your various brand deals to do something or say something? Do you think of yourself as a journalist? When you were at CNN, that was a question I always wanted to ask you the most. Like, are you doing journalism here while you have this brand deal? But now you don't. So where do, where do you see yourself um, in that spectrum? I think it's tough. And I think it's that that challenge is exasperated by my own fuck-ups of past. Like, I've, I have worked with Samsung and not been clear with my audience on it before, which was just stupid. Uh, <laughs> and No, I mean it. And I, looking back at it, like, I, I recognize the stupidity there. And the tough thing is, um, and this isn't an excuse, this is merely me trying to share my thought process, but um, I, I've always sort of maintained an objectivity. I've always been super transparent about the fact that no matter what uh, contract I might have with a Samsung or something like that, I still carry an iPhone. Yeah. Um, I've always been transparent with the fact that, like, no matter true. what... It's true. He's got a 10, and he, what, what's that? That is? is an LG. It's not even a Samsung phone. <laughs> I'm playing with an LG right now. Um, uh, Headphone jack. I'm just pointing it out to everybody. Yeah. Uh, the S9 is super, super sexy, by the way. Yeah. Um, I just don't have one on my service provider yet. So I've, I've screwed up in the past, and I should yeah. have been much, much more transparent in the past with it. But again, it's like, the way I think is it's like no one's really going to buy my favor, mm-hmm. and I know that in my heart, 
but I, I expect my audience not, and that's not fair. That's totally like especially as your audience gets bigger. Yeah, and it, I, that's a, I'm an asshole for even thinking that. And I think that that's something I've learned is as my audience has grown is like, um, you know, we were talking about earlier a mutual friend of ours who works in the tech space who right now is like posting for T-Mobile. Mm-hmm. And it's not a big deal for him. You know, he's got 20,000 followers and it's not – the consequences are small. And I think that when I look at the times I've screwed up egregiously with not being super transparent about my brand partnerships – it's just been because a, a, a failure to really acknowledge the repercussions of that. But to answer your question, I think as long as that transparency is there mm-hmm. and you're overt about it, I, I think it's okay. Uh, I think I am unique in that capacity because I love doing tech reviews and I've never once been paid by Samsung or anybody else to say something favorable about their device. And this is, again, these are distinctions that I expect my audience to understand and that expectation is completely unrealistic. But it's like, Every brand partnership I've ever done with Samsung has never been about promoting a device. Yeah. I mean, go back and look at every single video. We did a video for Christmas, and it was about, you know, um, turning a, sh- a, a shopping mall into a playground for, for kids. And mm-hmm. we did a video this last summer that I got uh, really, really beat up on social media for. But it was just about me and my best friend, like, goofing off in France. And before that, we did a video where I flew on a drone, and, like, we shot that on Canon cameras. I don't even think there was a Samsung phone in that video. Um, so again, it was like Samsung is, is a sponsor and enables these big ambitious projects, but then I'll do a review of one of their phones and like, how's my audience possibly supposed to understand a distinction there? Yeah. And the onus is on me. The onus is on the creator. And I think that, um, uh, I think that the creator needs to do a really good job of being really clear with that. And I have not done a good job. Yeah. It's in fairness. I will say, I don't. The reason that we never do that is because I don't know how to solve that problem. Sure. Right? Like, I think it's more important for us to say, just have always have that answer at the ready. They can't do that. We don't allow them to do that. And it's like always in my back pocket and we always say it. But I look at the future of creators on these platforms and I don't know how you grow a business without doing that stuff, like quite honestly. And I, I think that's a huge problem, especially as these platforms – hoover up more and more of the ad dollars they hoover up more and more of the attention you either got lucky and you started the verge in 2011 before they existed and you have enough scale or you have to play if you want to start something new you have to play in that game and there there has to be a middle ground and like i i honestly i don't yeah, know what the it, answer it, is and i'm it's... i'm happy on my side i think the people on youtube I, I love a lot of tech youtubers i love your channel you know you have to make different decisions to run that kind of business and I look at it and it seems really hard. It's it, it's tricky. And look, this is a really simple thing mm-hmm. that I'm looking, pushing ahead. Um, you know, when I was with uh, CNN for last year, I wasn't really looking or courting any brand brand deals. But now, again, I got to I got to pay the bills and I have to focus on my business. So I, I am looking for brand deals and companies that I think I can align with. And what was really interesting to me is I did a brand deal. I don't even think they paid me. They just gave me tickets to, <laughs> to go to both the Super Bowl and then go to um, to see the uh, Floyd Mayweather fight at the end of last summer. And it was with SeatGeek. Yeah. And I was super over it. I was like, this is a sponsored video by SeatGeek. Thank yeah. you, SeatGeek. And my audience didn't mind. Yeah. They didn't object. And I think like, and again, in retrospect, this is such a 20, you know, ret- hindsight's twenty twenty. This is such an, an obvious distinction. But I think the audience respects that you have to pay the bills. Yeah. I don't hate The Verge because I see that you've got Ford ads that are the top 60% of your homepage. I understand you guys got bills to pay. Right. And I think my audience and YouTube's audience at large, like they don't mind that you have to do brand deals. And they don't mind that I'm doing a SeatGeek deal because there's no conflict there. 
What's challenging is one of my closest friends, huge YouTuber, and all of his, his videos are about beautiful cinematography and cameras, and he's fully sponsored by Canon. Mm-hmm. So how does the audience know if Canon really is the best or he's being paid to say? That's where the conflict comes from. Yeah. So looking ahead, it's, it's, it's being much, much more clear and transparent in what brands I'm working with. And which brands don't present conflicts? You know, I'm, I, I am not a company that sells discounted tickets to <laughs> events. So when I talk about SeatGeek and thank them for sponsoring my channel, there's no conflict. There's, yeah. there's, there's nothing like that. So I, I do think there are ways to navigate this minefield, but it's, it is tricky. I think that's where the Patreon-type models come in, the Kickstarter drip-type models come in, where now you're just taking money from an audience. Right, and and you don't have this like third party well, so th- that may or may not influence you. Uh, this is interesting because I I am Twitch. I've just started playing with, and mm-hmm. I absolutely like love Twitch. What an incredible platform! And Twitch's monetization uh, tools on there, like the the way that you're able to make money off of Twitch, is is wildly different from the way you make money on YouTube. Even though you're essentially disseminating the same kind of content, I'm monetizing the same kind of content, and it feels so much more organic, so much more fair, so much more honest. And the on, the opportunities there are myriad. They're not just sort of a single payer method, which is AdSense. Yeah. But the question then is like, why doesn't YouTube just copy Twitch? I don't think they ever could. Really? I don't. I think slowly over time they could introduce uh, monetization products that maybe look like it. But the trouble is, you go to YouTube and you expect to see it for free. You expect everything to be AVOD because that's how it's always been. So the minute on YouTube you're asking for money. Um, you're a bad guy. This isn't how YouTube works. And I think it's that sort of collective understanding that is really challenging. You can't innovate. You can't innovate once the audience has a built-in understanding of what it looks like, especially when it comes to money. It's why, uh, you know, a lot of YouTubers on, uh, a lot of YouTube creators that use Patreon get a lot of shit for using Patreon. It's understood. If you use Patreon as a YouTuber, you will be like, you will be given a hard time by the audience. You'll be picked on for saying things like, why are you asking your audience to pay you money for your channel? This isn't how this works. It's a big topic of conversation on YouTube. I don't agree with it, Mm -hmm. but it is a big topic of conversation. And then you go over on Twitch with things like a tip jar and subscribers and Prime subscriptions. It is is the same exact, exact uh, method of, of, of giving someone money. Yeah. And on Twitch, it's it's the norm. Do you think like YouTube Red? Would you ever make a YouTube Red series? Do you think that hides you in a corner? Um, I don't understand YouTube Red. So I pay for it and I love it just because the ads are good. Yeah, okay, me too. But what yeah. you're talking about, you'd ask me yeah, different the things. Original there. Content, um, so, yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, Susan, the CEO of of YouTube, just described in that Recode podcast. That's a Vox company, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm so I'm promoting yeah, them as yeah. Their, their offer code is Casey. <laughs> um, the, their offer code is Casey. Um, <laughs> She described Red as a music service. Yeah. Did you hear that podcast? You know what yeah. I'm talking about? I had never heard Red described as a YouTube ser- as a music service before. It was very confusing. Very, very confusing. I use Red because I don't like ads. Yeah. What is a YouTube Red series? What is a YouTube original series? What I, I have no idea what any of this means. The thing is, you could put it all together, right? It, you could. The fact that they described it as a music service, because you get Google Play Music with it. Okay, I don't even know how that works. I don't even know what Google Play Music is. Fergecast listeners tweet at me about Google Play Music (laughs) all the time. I think Spotify's bad. They're all like, use Google Play Music. Anyway, you get it for free with Red, and you get to watch a bunch of music videos, which I think is maybe the primary use of what people do on Red, and that's why she said it. Don't really understand. But can I just watch music videos without Red? 
Yeah, but you have to watch ads. But I think their data shows that people with red subscriptions watch a lot of video. I think that's what she was getting at. You I and I both right now are understand. just making wild assumptions here as to what this huge product that defines right. their platform actually is. And that is the problem. So, yeah, of course. But you could do it because red, if well, I'm a red subscriber, when I watch your videos, a little bit of my red $10 a month funnels at you through some complicated process, right? I mean, that's the whole... You take the ads away. I'm not just giving YouTube money. YouTube's giving some of that money back to the creators. If they could construct that argument, then you have something like a Twitch Prime, right? Where you're saying you Whoa. love your favorite creators. S- sort of. We're going to bundle them up and you get early access to their stuff. Sort of, but you know, Twitch Prime is me being like, dude, I love you. Boom, here's five bucks. Right. It's such a clean transaction. Mm-hmm. And if you and I can't even define, or the CEO can't even define what red actually is, how are you exposed to... How do you how do you expect the regular sort of ordinary viewer to understand what this is? And that like th- this is not so different from what we were talking about before about working with brands. Like when you don't understand something, you're frustrated by it. Um, confusion equals frustration equals anger. How does Yoda say it? Um, Angrily say it. <laughs> <laughs> all those all those things. And I think that like that is the trouble with red. Yeah. And this conversation started with you saying, "Would I ever do a red series?" And my answer is, like, I don't know what a Red Series is. Right. I know it's a thing that they give creators money for, and then it goes on to their channel that some people can see, and I don't. So, so the answer is, until they're able to really clarify that, I think it would be, it would be challenging. I did go to YouTube. You know, I'm, I'm about to start a new series on my channel, and I went to YouTube for money. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, hey, this is more expensive than I'm going to be able to afford off of AdSense. Can I do this as, a, as some sort of YouTube original? And it... it didn't really align with what they were doing, what Red was, which was a learning experience for me. But um, uh, outside of that, uh, you know, I, I don't know where or how I might fit into what I now understand YouTube Red is. Yeah, I think the question of what it is is it's out there. I just there's something, and this is true of Google. I think in general, they always have all the pieces. And they just need someone to put them together into a coherent. Dude, product. I I spend whatever twelve bucks a month on Netflix, and therefore yeah. I can log into Netflix and watch videos. I spend nine ninety nine a month for Spotify. Open up my Spotify app, I can listen to all the music I want. Like I just want to know what a transaction is. And even on Twitch, when somebody I really like does something really funny, and I click tip jar and I send them a buck, I know exactly what I just did. And I think on Google, the services are so convoluted. And there are so, we haven't even talked about YouTube TV. There's so many different versions. And they've changed so much over the years that all of that confusion just yields mistrust. Yeah. And I think that until everything's clarified, it, it does make it harder for creators to go beyond working with brands or, or AdSense, which I think are very, um, very old school models for monetizing content on a platform as forward as YouTube. Yeah. So let's end. You just mentioned you're starting a new series. Can you talk about it? What's your next thing? Um, yeah. So kicking it off like kind of the first week of April, um, mm-hmm. it is something I'm much, much, much more excited about than I have been probably since I started Beam. Yeah. Like, I, like the butterflies in my stomach I haven't felt since I was raising capital for my tech company. But the short of it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm going all in on content creation because after years of you know, building tech and everything else, I realized that's the thing that I just find most satisfying is, is actually making things. It's what I love doing. Um, and the approach this time around and the way that I'm scaling it and turning it into a, a business is that I now know the 
sort of the value and the opportunities that come along with having a successful series online, um, having that level of influence, having, you know, what transpired six months into my vlog where I was doing, you know, a million and a half views a day um, and the opportunities that were coming at me that I was just leaving everything on the table because my focus is on the creative. So with some understanding of what that looks like, I'm now building infrastructure around myself and a business, businesses Mm -hmm. around myself to absorb to mitigate um, and to, uh, you know, to, to make sure we are exploring every opportunity that presents itself because of, uh, you know, because of this new show that I'm, I'm hoping so it's a show. will find an audience. I mean, it's a YouTube series. So it's a YouTube series on your channel. On my but channel. But you're building multiple businesses around it? Preemptively. Okay. And that's something that I think is certainly new for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, um, this is going to sound crazy to say, and your audience is going to give me hell for saying this. I spent a half an hour on the phone last night with Jake Paul <laughs> getting advice. <laughs> um, uh, you know, whether you like his content or not, you know, Jake, somebody I've known for years and, and is, is doing interesting things from a business perspective. Yeah. Um, but this is such a new thing. And that's why I called Jake. This is such a new thing to really figure out and understand what the value of having a successful YouTube series uh, is. And how do you take advantage of all that value? Right. And, and I he's think- got multiple lines of business, right? He runs to and, 10. Sure, and nothing I'm store. doing is 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 modeled after or looks like what he's doing, but the point is he does have those things. There's no objectively stating he does have those things and and I want to be in a position where I'm able to really really uh make sure that I'm not leaving opportunity on the floor because I'm focused on making my videos. Instead, let's build an infrastructure. Let's have the right people in place. Let's have the right physical space in place. Let's have everything around me that I need to have around me so when my creative does find its audience and that audience is excited by it and the opportunities that that beset that, I'm in a position to really um, not miss out on them. So that's the most sort of... uh, uh, ambiguous way <laughs> I can talk about what I'm doing. I don't want to take the I don't want to take the wind out of the sails because I'm yeah. I'm really excited about well, the when launch, you launch video. It, you'll, you'll come back. It won't be another year. Yeah, no. Let's start the, the DMs show. now, and I can be back in less than a year. <laughs> well, dude, I've taken up an hour of your time. Thank you so much. I'm excited for your next thing. I, I you know, I made a really big gesture of bringing gifts by the studio That's here, true. and I thought you'd make a fuss out of it to make me seem like a good guy in the podcast. You haven't even mentioned it. Well, it's a, another brand deal. Oh, here, here's what I'm going to say. Casey brought us some hot sauce. Hey, hot that's all I was, that's all Casey I was looking sauce. for. He brought us like, <laughs> what, 12 bottles? 12 bottles of hot sauce. It's in a beautiful bag. Right. They're great. Are they for sale? You can plug the hot sauce. I, oh, I don't need to plug it. I told you I'm not getting paid for the hot sauce. <laughs> it's my friend's company. He gave me free juice and he put my face on a bottle of hot sauce. It's, it looks delicious. It's spicy. It's, I'm into it. I love a good hot sauce. Everybody loves a good hot sauce. I'll make sauce. you this. I'll use it tonight. And I'll, I'll, I'll no, it, but that's not a plug. Like, there's not no, a plug. You can't buy it. I think you can, maybe you can buy it in the stores. I'm not selling it. I don't make, <laughs> if you buy hot sauce, I don't make any money. I just, I just, you know. It was a very nice gesture. Hey, hey, that's also all I'm showed up for. and uh, rode one of our video director's unicycles around the office. I appreciate we that the Verge offices have a unicycle. We, it's real wacky. I, I describe our, our, the Verge culture as a really high performing Montessori. Like it's like a surprisingly productive. My three year olds in Montessori, and I concur. That is exactly what the yeah, vibe in here is like. Just a bunch of smart people doing whatever they want, and sometimes it's good. <laughs> That's like all I got. <laughs> like I'm happy with that. That's that. We talked a lot about scaling up a business. It's surprising to me that we're as big as we are inside of a company that has gotten way bigger, uh, and it's still 
you have to have a fun. you have to have a long enough rope, a long enough leash to really find your voice in media to succeed today. And I think that's why the bigger companies that are slower moving are struggling against smaller, more nimble companies is because that's a very, very hard principled thing to do when you've been doing things the same way for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. I mean, and we see that, right? We're now we're a bigger media company, but there are bigger media companies that want to come work with us. And a lot of those conversations, we just sort of let them taper off because it, it I, the verge is a big thing that feels small and I want it to feel small for as, as long as it can. But thank you, not to talk about us at the end, but thank you so much for showing up. Thank you for the hot sauce. Great to be here. Thank you for the unicycle adventure. <laughs> Thanks for letting me ride it. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it.